0: Tonight we're talking about Colossians chapter 2 verses 16 through 23, so if you uh, turn in, in your Bible or your Bible app, you figured out by now, right, that if a uh, teenager or, or college student grabs their cell phone, they're not necessarily texting their friend, they might actually be looking at their Bible. They might not be, but uh, I know my kids use their Bible apps, so Colossians two sixteen through 23. Uh, in 2003, um, I have was uh, invited to go to Sudan at a time that uh, the nation was very volatile, still pretty volatile right now. Uh, New Sudan was sort of being uh, fashion-informed, and um, there was a, an ongoing holocaust. Uh, the Islamic regime of the north was slaughtering uh, thousands and thousands of, of Christians and non-Muslims, animists, and they were all fleeing to the south, south of the Nuba Mountains. And... Um, And there was war happening right there. That was sort of the line of demarcation. And uh, I have a friend named Michael Howard, uh, kind of a different guy. Um, He's British, uh, but he's really not influenced the way we are by Western culture. He grew up on a Rhodesian game reserve. Uh, His father was uh, a soldier in World War II and was disenfranchised with Western society and decided to go far away from it. And he took a post uh, in a a British colony down there uh, in Rhodesia at the time on a game reserve. And, And Michael was raised... You know, we're raised maybe seeing like a woodchuck or a deer coming by in our front yard. He would just see elephants, you know, coming by. And um, he grew up uh, in that harsh uh, African uh, African environment. And um, uh, a number of years ago, he went to Sudan to start a Bible school, just felt led of the Lord to do that, and uh, literally had to, like, trust God to drive him around landmines to get there. And when he got there, the government just said, uh, we, we need Bible schools, and we need churches, and we need chaplains, so here, take this uh, snake-infested old uh, compound here. If you can uh, get it cleaned up, you can use it as a Bible school, and, and uh, the way he got his Bible school students was the government went to the front lines where the fighting was in the Nuba Mountains, and they picked 100 soldiers, and they said, okay, we need 100 Bible school students. Okay, you and uh, you and, and you, and uh, 100, uh, 100 uh, soldiers became Bible school students, uh, didn't know the Lord, you know. It was not, not necessarily a prerequisite to get into this particular Bible school. And um, the first thing Michael had to do was lead him to Christ the first year of, of classes. And uh, incredible miracles followed as he became one of the most wanted men in, in North Sudan. They tried to bomb his academy between four and five times a week for the first year. Bombs never hit. Just amazing story after amazing story. So, The first graduation is coming up for this class, and I befriended Michael on some of his trips here to the United States. And uh, I was informed through his secretary in Kansas City that I was going over to do music for his first graduation. That's kind of the way he works. He just kind of told me, yeah, Derek's coming to do this. And so uh, I thought, well, I've been wanting to get back to Africa. I spent a year in in Tanzania right out of uh, high school, Uh, had a big impact on my life. Africa's near and dear to my heart, and so I decided uh, that I would go. But then I got a death waiver in the mail. You know, if you lose life or limb, we're not responsible. So I went to my wife. I said, "Well, this is getting pretty serious here. Uh, they're telling me if I, you know, if I uh, don't sign this, you know, I can't go because you know I guess I'm risking my life going here." And I said, you know, "This is pretty serious. You, you, sh- you got you have faith for me to go?" She goes, "Uh, ah, if the bombs start flying, just grab onto Michael. You'll be fine." <laughs> All right, signed it, sent it. So I got to uh, Uganda, we flew into Entebbe, and from Entebbe we took a puddle jumper plane up to northern uh, Uganda into a little town called Arua, and Arua is right in the middle of where there's a lot of African game. Matter of fact, the the airstrip was so primitive that uh, the airplane had to fly over once to scare the animals off before it landed. And so uh, we land in Arua, and then we get picked up by a man named Paisley from Michael's Ministry to make our trek along the 60-mile road that was just a bombed-out, washed-out road, uh, terrible driving conditions, uh, into the heart of Sudan. And um, when we get in the car, I asked the driver, I said, uh, actually, Paisley, the guy that was with the driver, I said, Paisley, uh, uh, the the Kansas City office said you would have our visas when we arrived. He goes, "Uh, visas? Uh, I have no visas. And I said, then how are we going to get across the border? I mean, this is like... The scary place to go. We don't want to, like, you know, mess with these guys. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, we will trust the Lord. Okay? He told us to get in the back of the vehicle, it's Land Rover, sit among the luggage, me and two other guys that went with me. Actually, one of the guys is now the worship director at Grace Road in, in uh, Rochester, John Ebel. And we're sitting in the back among all this luggage. We pull up to the border, and out come these two dudes with AK-47s. And they just kind of start looking around, and they start asking questions to the guys in the front. And all of a sudden, they start making their way to the back of the vehicle. And I'm going, guys, I I don't think there's any benefit to us trying to hide under a suitcase or something. When they open it up, we'll just wave and say, Jumbo, which is Swahili for hello. So they open the back. There we are sitting among the luggage, and we're just like, Jumbo! And uh, they yelled up to the front to Paisley. He said something, and, you know, and... and, uh, in their language, and, and, uh, and, and then uh, a few minutes later, they button up the truck, and we go into Sudan. And I said, uh, Paisley, we didn't have visas. How did you get us in? And he, he said, oh, I told them that you are with Michael. And that's all he said. <laughs> I said, so my relationship with Michael is my visa to get into a war-torn nation like Sudan? Yes. Because you know Michael, they let you in to Sudan. There's the gospel right there, my friends. It had nothing to do with my merit, what kind of education I had back in the States, what kind of a dad or a husband I was, how many good works I'd done, or what nice thoughts I had toward the Africans. The only thing that mattered was that I had a relationship with Michael Howard. That was my access into the kingdom of Sudan. And it is the same way in the kingdom of God. Your access when you get to the border is not your merits. It's not your works. It's not human traditions. It's not what church you grew up in or what version of the Bible you read or what your eschatology is. It's whether or not you have a relationship with Jesus Christ. He is your visa. He is your access into the kingdom of God. And here we are in the book of Galatians and these clowns come along and they suggest to these early church believers Paul's Uh, spiritual uh, grandchildren, in a sense, because Epaphras, uh, one of his spiritual sons, planted this church in Colossae. And these false teachers come along, and they suggest that, well, uh, yeah, you need Jesus plus you need uh, this special knowledge. They introduced this heresy that was a form of syncretism that had four elements of both pagan and and Jewish religion, the philosophies of men, which was special, elite knowledge. It claimed a profound knowledge apart from Christ, which denied the all-sufficiency and the preeminence of Christ. They they introduced or reintroduced uh, Judaistic ceremonialism, an emphasis on prescribed rituals. They attached special significance to the rite of circumcision, food regulations, observance of special days. They said Jesus plus angel worship, which, of course, detracted from the glory and the uniqueness of Christ, our mediator. And then they introduced asceticism, the idea of just severely mistreating the body in some attempt to uh, impress God or gain access to God or gain a place of righteousness with him. So let's, uh, if you're not there already, let's let's turn to Colossians chapter 2 and let's read the passage that I'm going to be sharing from tonight. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. And at the reading of God's word, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the glory of Christ in the gospel. We thank you for the power of God in the gospel. I pray, Lord, that we would just be uh, enraptured, awakened, taken in with it again tonight, Lord, before the gospel runs through us. Lord, as I know is the heart of renovation and missio, uh, in this area, let the gospel run in us. We pray tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. He says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. I'm sure some of you are familiar with the uh, Tulian the Shevijan book, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. A lot of the false teaching that had come into a lot of the different uh, churches in the early church that the apostles confronted. Uh, they wanted to subtract something from Christ or add something to the gospel and remove what Paul called the simplicity that we have in Jesus. In the book of Galatians, it was, it was circumcision. Uh, in, uh, in the book of 1 John, the Gnostics came and they introduced uh, special knowledge. And, and it was Jesus plus This special knowledge. And here we have a concoction of all this. Elite knowledge. uh, Judaistic rituals and uh, circumcision. Angel worship. Asceticism. Their gospel was Jesus plus these things. Paul's gospel. The gospel of grace. Is Jesus plus nothing. And as Chavijan said... Jesus plus nothing equals everything. On the foundation of understanding Jesus plus nothing, on the foundation of understanding our justification by faith, we can be sanctified. And I know so many people that that have walked with God even for years that are obsessed with their sanctification and struggling and stumbling in their sanctification, focusing so much on their sanctification, but they fail to understand their justification, and it is our justification that is the foundation on which we are sanctified. And here these, these people come, and they say your access into the kingdom of God is not just Jesus, but it's all these traditions, these rituals, these works, this special knowledge. In Galatians 2.21, when Paul was confronting the Judaizers who added just a simple uh, law of circumcision to Christ in order to be made righteous in the eyes of God and gain access into the kingdom of God, Paul said, we do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. See, when we we add something to the sufficiency of Christ and the finished work of Christ, we literally are making the cross mean nothing in our lives. We're saying, I don't really believe that the cross is enough for me. I need to add to the cross. I need to add to Christ's work. In order to make it sufficient. And I appreciate, I appreciate what uh, Jim and the worship band was singing earlier. All my hope is in you. All my hope is in you. you know, we, th- we sing stuff like that. You know, Jesus, you're my everything. Jesus is my all in all. Well then what does that leave you? If Jesus is my everything, then I am my nothing. If Jesus is my all in all, then I am my none in none. simple math, right? We trust in Christ. Paul said in in the book of Philippians, he he gave his spiritual resume. He said, I was of the tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And, you know, as to the law, blameless. And he said, but I count all these things as rubbish. These things that, uh, that these false teachers are introducing. Again, he says, I count them as rubbish. If anybody was to gain a righteous standing before God through their spiritual heritage or resume, I would. He says, but I counted it as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ, that I might find a righteousness not in myself, but a righteousness that is in Christ. The three words he said, which are so precious to all of us who love the gospel, it is finished. That phrase might've meant even more to those who heard it in that day, even than it does to us today. It is finished is the same word that was used by tax collectors. When a debt was paid in full, they received the payment If it was paid in full, they'd write in the ledger, it is finished. Same phrase a a, a landowner would use. If a servant did some work that he was assigned to do, he'd come back. He'd say, I did the work. The landowner would inspect the work. If it was done the way that he told him to do it, if it was done right, he'd look at it and say, it is finished. My friends, my brothers and sisters, Jesus paid the price. And Jesus did the work. And now we are justified By faith, or having been, as Romans 5 1 says, hope you're encouraged by the tense of that, having been justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have access into Sudan because we know Michael Howard. We have access into the kingdom of God because we know Jesus Christ and are known by him. That's our gospel. That's the good news of our gospel. It's like um, anybody have kids who play T-ball? or have played t-ball maybe you're just getting into some of you just into that season well a few years ago uh, when reese was five he's eight now he played his first t-ball season t-ball is kind of like half sports half comedy (laughs) um like the big win in his first game was when he successfully ran to first base you know the crowds erupted and and cheered you might have seen it on espn baseball tonight that night my son reese made it successfully to first base but then uh, the next guy hit the ball and Reese just sort of ran into right field. You never told me where you were going. He just kind of ran into the sunset, just gone. <laughs> Reese, he could barely hear me. Reese, come back, come back. Second base is over here. That's T-ball. At the end of the first year, at the end of the first year, um, the coaches told us, uh, kind of a big deal, we're gonna take the T out and uh, we're going to do some live pitching to your, to your kids. So uh, we're going you know, to hit some live pitches. Oh, awesome. My wife, Heidi, was not able to make the game, and I wanted her to see how well Reese was doing, so I took my video camera to record the, uh, his at-bats. And of course, I coached him up that week. I played high school and college baseball, and I did my best to coach him up. And, and uh, the game time came. Reese is up to bat. He got up three times that day. And I'm standing behind him, and I said, all right, here we go, Reese record. The pitcher pitches it, swing and a miss. Oh, well, I don't want to, like, record a bunch of misses, so I stopped recording. I coached him up. Reese, get that back elbow up, you know, be comfortable. Okay, here we go. Record, pitch, swing and a miss. Oh. And I tried to, maybe something else. You keep your eye on the ball, you know, you try to encourage. Record, swing and a miss, stop. Record, swing and a miss, stop. Record, swing a miss, stop. Eight times he missed. Okay, the ninth time, pitch, Crack, and he hits it down the third baseline. Woo, that's my boy. Got it on film. Second time up, he missed four times. Crack, he hits it up the middle. Third time up, he misses six times. Crack, and he hits it down the first baseline. End of the game, he's having a snack, and I grab my camera. And I'm looking at, I don't know if you did the math, I've got 18 misses and three hits. I thought, well, I... I want to show Heidi when I get home how well he's doing, but I don't want her to see all these misses. And then I thought, she she doesn't have to. This is a digital camera. Delete, 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 delete. All 18, gone. I went home, I said, Heidi. (laughs) It was awesome. You want to see how well Reese is hitting? Yeah. Here we go. Play. Crack, and a hit down the third baseline. Crack, and he hits it up the middle. Crack, and a hit down the first baseline. She's like, he's incredible. I'm like, isn't he? I'm thinking like Major League Material here. All she saw was the hits. Now, therefore... There is no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because there's nothing to condemn. Because Jesus drank every drop of the cup of God's wrath. He took it in himself. And we are not made righteous by special knowledge or uh, Jewish ceremony or ritualism or circumcision or angel worship or asceticism. We are made righteous by Christ and Christ alone and our faith in him and his finished work. That is our gospel. And here come these false teachers, and they're trying to steal people away from the simplicity of that. And Paul says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you. Let no one. He's emphatic. And something needs to rise up in us. Those who have been set free, some of you, I'm sure you, you experienced the death of legalism. I certainly did. I went through severe depression, almost ended up out of ministry. And if it wasn't for the grace of God, I would have ended up outside the kingdom of God. If it wasn't for his grace at work in me because I was a legalist, I was a performanceist, it was about my, my works. I wanted to be the most spiritual guy in the room and yet at the end of my journey of works, I found myself farther away from God than I was at the beginning. Didn't understand that. Problem was, it was a grab at glory. I was trying to share God's glory. Take a little bit of it to myself because it really is about me and it's about impressing God. And by the way, God's not that easy to impress. Hope you, hope you know that. Matter of fact, there's only one thing that really impresses him, and it's the obedience of his son, Jesus. That's it. And we are in him. There's Paul's hallmark, hallmark phrase for the gospel. We are in Christ. He uses it, what, 12 times? 13 times? and Ephesians 1? We are in Christ. We are found in him. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who have been set free from the agony and the pain of that. It looks impressive at first. People will applaud you. They'll say, "Wow, look, look at this radical Christian. Look how much they pray. and Look at how many people are telling about Jesus. Those things aren't bad, of course, in themselves. But if the motive is contaminated by religious pride or fear of punishment, if it's not motivated by love and faith, they are dead works. I don't care if you're doing missionary work. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you travel land and sea to make one convert. When he becomes one, become twice as much a son of hell as you are. I've met people in the nations who are, who are there in some sick sense that they need to appease uh, their God in some way and, and earn somehow some righteous place with him. That's not our gospel. Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you. And I hope something rises up in you, those who have known the, the chains of that bondage of legalism, which is not Christianity it's a counterfeit version of Christianity that lies right at, the, right at the fringe, always tempting, always pulling us back. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. And Paul says, let no one, I hope something rises up in you that says, nobody's going to take my liberty from me. Nobody is going to steal away the simplicity that I have in Christ. He says, let no one pass judgment on you. That's a Greek word, krino. It basically is an, it, it's a person in an arrogant position that basically is saying, I decide, Whether it is good. It means to pick out by separating. Okay, you're righteous because you you abide by my rules. You're unrighteous because you don't. Pick out by separating. I decide whether it's good. It actually implies bringing someone to trial. And Paul is saying, let no one bring you into that courtroom. Let no one put you in that place. Because Christ is your defender, and Christ gave himself for you, and you are found righteous in him. He is your access into the kingdom of God. And we see this play out in the most menial, daily places in our local church communities. You know, at Grace Life Church, I see it as part of my duty and the duty of our elders to fiercely protect the center of the gospel and not let anyone pull their little you know, pet rules or preferences into the center of the gospel because we fellowship because of our faith in Christ, not because we necessarily agree uh, on all matters of conscience. Some of us have different convictions. God help us if we need to have uniformity in every area of liberty and conscience. And so we need to protect the center of the gospel, and by doing so, we protect our fellowship. We had a guy in our community group. If there's such a thing as a doctrine and conspiracy theory, he has it. And uh, we're talking about uh, John 8, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And I said, any thoughts on this? Uh, yeah, I got a thought. Okay, Lord, I, I began interceding. Please help us, Lord, to stay on track here. Yeah, I got a thought. You know, a few years ago, you know, I got some kids and uh, somebody told me I should get one of these uh, New York State program, you know, health insurance programs. And uh, as I began to fill out the application, but then I, I just suddenly realized that, uh, You know, corporate theft is no different than personal theft. I mean, the fact that they're picking money out of my wallet through, you know, through taxes uh, is no different than uh, if a thief came into my house and just, you know, opened my safe and took my jewels. So I I can't support that by getting a New York State, uh, you know, health uh, insurance program for my kids. So I said no, and I was free. Oh, I said, uh, does anybody else have anything they want to add to that uh, conversation? And afterwards, I approached the guy and I said, listen, when I talk about gospel centrality and the purity of the center of the gospel, what you did in that room and why it was so awkward when you talked, listen, if you've got, you got some strong conviction about that, and we, we, that's another conversation. But you made it an issue of righteousness for everybody else in the room. And I'll tell you right now, there are people in that room, me included, that don't mind paying my taxes. And there are people in that room that do use New York State uh, health insurance programs. And you made it an issue of righteousness. You tried to violate their conscience by imposing your view of that on them. And that is not the gospel. You made it an issue of righteousness. Please don't do that. Okay. Yeah, I can see that, he said. Six months later, we're in another meeting. We're talking about prayer. And he goes, you know, a lot of you know that I'm really in a, you know, I think a lot about conspiracy and I think a lot about, uh, you know, deserts in northern Africa and what's going on there and terrorism. He goes, I, I used to think it was... You know, so uh, I could get behind bombing the tents in northern Africa. But now I realize, as I see the love of God, that the reason God made me like this is so I could pray for them. And, and now I'm praying for those people in northern Africa. And I'm praying for our government. And I was like, boom! You know, nobody in the room knew how big a deal that was. That, there was a little miracle that happened in this guy's heart. Because he, he could see why God had made him like that. And he could see what the center of the gospel was and what it wasn't. So he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regard to festival, new moon, or Sabbath. So this is when a person sets himself up as a definer of righteousness. In essence, they're, they're making themselves God. They're saying, I'm going to play God in your life by uh, commanding your conscience. Uh, there's a... Um, story that uh, I came across, on I don't know if any of you follow Jared Wilson on Twitter or his blogs. He's kind of a witty uh, reformed guy, and um, he's got some connection to Acts 29. I don't know if he's 829 yet, but he he wrote uh, this this exchange that happened between uh, Charles Spurgeon and Dwight Pentecost at a conference that they both attended, 1874. It says, Christian World Magazine reported a curious exchange between itinerant uh, preachers Dwight Pentecost and Charles Spurgeon taking place upon a joint appearance at a worship service. Pentecost included in his sermon an impassioned tale of heeding God's call to give up smoking as it impeded his piety. Many saw this testimony as a passive-aggressive dig at Spurgeon, himself a well-known cigar smoker. When Spurgeon took the pulpit, this is what he said, Well, dear friends, you know that some men can do for the glory of God what to other men would be sin. And notwithstanding what Brother Pentecost has said, I intend to smoke a good cigar for the glory of God before I go to bed tonight. (laughs) If anybody can show me in the Bible the command, Thou shalt not smoke cigars, I am ready to keep it. But I haven't found it yet. I found ten commandments, and it's as much as I can do to keep them. And I have no desire to make them into eleven or twelve. The fact is, I have been speaking to you about real sins. Not about listening to mere quibbles and scruples. At the same time, I know that what a man believes to be sin becomes sin to him, and he must give it up. Whatever is not from faith is sin, Romans 14, 23. And that is the real point of what my brother Pentecost has been saying. Why a man may think it is a sin to have his boots blacked. Well, then let him give it up and have them whitewashed. I wish to say that I am not ashamed of anything whatsoever that I do. And I don't feel that smoking makes me ashamed and therefore mean to smoke to the glory of God. (laughs) Let no one. Let no one pass judgment on you on questions of food or drink with regard to festival, new moon, or Sabbath. Bringing to trial. I decide whether it is good. Pick out by separating. In a sense, he's saying, let no one divide. Uh, one of the ways I teach this is that we remain gospel-centered by avoiding two kinds of, of excess to the gospel. Number one, what you might call intra intra-biblical excess and then extra-biblical excess. Intra-biblical excess is a little more obvious. It's it's taking maybe a a ritual or a rule uh, from the ceremonial law of the Old Testament like circumcision, adding it to the cross and making that an issue of righteousness and an issue of acceptance into fellowship and into the kingdom of God itself. We need to avoid such things. Those things are called heresy and doctrines of demons in Scripture. Paul wasn't like Oh, yeah, we need to, uh, there's many streams in the body of Christ, and uh, they are from the circumcision stream, and we need to hear a little bit of what they have to say, because everybody has something. No, they have a doctrine of demons, legalism, works righteousness, that results in spiritual death. And so as as pastors and elders and teachers, we protect the gospel, and we keep intra-biblical excess out of the center of the gospel to define what makes us righteous before God. When we are justified by faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone. Maybe a spiritual gift might be added to that. I grew up in the uh, charismatic Pentecostal movement. I would say some of that was uh, hyper-Pentecostalism. And there was definitely this idea taught that you are made righteous in the eyes of God by Jesus plus your spiritual gift. And it definitely tongues. Now what's the gospel? Jesus plus Tongues. So that's intra-biblical excess, and then there's extra-biblical excess, which is a little more subtle and harder to detect because the thing that you feel strongly about may actually be good, maybe safe, maybe healthy. You've come to that, uh, that, that conviction uh, through the liberty of, uh, of grace and, the, and, the con- and your conscience, and, and you have faith about that particular issue, whether it's... You know, listening to secular music or, or what your movie choices, entertainment choices, clothing, uh, whether or not you drink alcohol, uh, whether or not you smoke cigars, etc., uh, you have a, a preference or a conviction about that. The problem is, if you bring that into the center of the gospel, that, that just destroys Christian fellowship. And strangely, churches that aren't careful to, uh, to protect the center of the gospel and allow either... Something you know, an intra-biblical excess or extra-biblical excess into the center of the gospel actually become more known by their preference or their excess than they do the gospel itself. You see this happen. I'll pick on myself. Okay, we got six kids. Uh, We homeschool our kids through grade seven. Love homeschooling. It's been great. You know, I get dad class with the kids. I you know I get. I get to have wrestling class with Reese every day because I was also a high school and college wrestler. So, you know, we get to, I get to really pour into my kids through those years. Man, I got a lot of faith and joy in that, uh, et cetera. But homeschooling is not an issue of righteousness for me. Okay? I'm a lead pastor at Grace Life Church, right? Uh, so uh, if I made homeschooling an issue of righteousness, uh, then we have insiders and outsiders at Grace Life. So I'm basically saying, Jesus, yeah, of course, we assume that. Plus really should homeschool your kids, that, that's righteous to do that. If you don't, you're giving your kids to the sodomites, you know, uh, don't do that. Because um, I'm concerned for you, and, and that, that's really unrighteous. It's lazy. Uh, it's not, I mean, oh, you need to be awake. I'm trying to awaken you. Uh, and all of a sudden, what, what happens if I, if I draw that line? Homeschooling is now an issue of righteousness added to the gospel. So our gospel is now Jesus plus homeschooling, and we become a homeschool church. So we attract all the homeschoolers. Everybody comes to our church, and if you're a homeschooler, you're awake. You get it. You're righteous, and those those poor people are just giving their kids to the wolves. Right? I've seen this. I've been around it. Some of you may have may have as well. And again, I'm not I'm not saying home, homeschool is uh, is bad. I, Be self condemning. I love it. If you ask me, I'm going to speak faith into you about that, but it's not an issue of righteousness. We are made righteous through Christ's work alone. We are justified by faith. Verse 17 These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. They didn't see Christ, They, they saw the rules, they saw the law, they saw the testament, they saw the covenant of works they didn't see Christ. There was this blindness. But the law was just a pointer to Christ. Legalists don't see Jesus, they just see rules. Turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27. We're gonna gonna see this idea here. This idea that it's possible to know the Bible without knowing the Bible. Um, The Sadducees come to try to test Jesus. They have a question about marriage and the resurrection. you talk about educated religious leaders. I mean, the Sadducees were like the elites. They were the, they were the Harvard grads. They knew the Bible. They memorized, you know, the Pentateuch. I mean, they knew the Bible. And we're going to find out that they didn't know the Bible. So they asked this question. You know, if in the resurrection, uh, you know, uh, a woman's had, uh, you know, she had a husband. He died. She married a brother. He died. Happened seven times. Who's she going to marry in the resurrection? You know, the, They're trying to make marriage and the resurrection look foolish in the light of marriage. Jesus said to them in verse 24 of Mark 12, Is this not the reason you are wrong, because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God? Isn't that amazing that he would say that to them? You know not the Scriptures. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses? Again, he's saying... Don't you know the Bible? He goes to their book. Have you not read in the book of Moses, the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. So they knew the Bible, but they didn't know the Bible. John 5, 39, Jesus said to the religious leaders, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is these that testify of me. Paul writes here, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. The scriptures point to Christ, lead us to Christ, lead us to justification, being made right in the eyes of God, being accepted in the eyes of God, by faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, we are saved. It's a gift. Not by elite knowledge or the worship of angels or, or severe mistreatment of the body. No, it's it's Christ. These things point to Christ, and they were somehow blind to it. Verse 18, Colossians 2. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. And there it is again, right there. Legalism is just a grab at glory. I I want to boast. I'm awesome. Look at me. Check me out. Look what I did. Look what I can do. I'm better than you. I I did more works than you. I have more elite knowledge than you. I pray more than you. I I fast more than you. I mistreated my body more than you did. Wow, I'm holy. I mean, if you look at the the culture of the Pharisees, I mean, it it got really crazy 2,000 years ago. You know, there was one Pharisee called the depressed Pharisee, and um, he would go around with his head down all the time in public to be seen by men, uh, and he would walk uh, heel to toe, heel to toe, barely lifting up his feet from the earth. So he'd walk around like this. The depressed Pharisee. The idea is that people would go, look. Look at how righteous. Yea, he barely even lifteth up his head. And look toward the sky, he's so humble and holy. He doth not even lift up his feet from the earth. Then you had a Pharisee called the Pharisee letting blood. This, th- these are guys who would uh, walk around and... Uh, with their eyes closed, and they would fake collisions with walls until blood ran down their head. It was this ritual they did so that people would look at them and go, wow, look at that Pharisee. Look at that religious leader. Uh, He he has his eyes closed so as not to look upon women lustfully. He collides with walls. Look, the the blood runneth down his head. He is righteous and holy. No, it's repulsive. It's disgusting. It's a grab at glory. It's self-righteousness. It is not Humility. It is not the gospel. It is not Christ-likeness. And this is what they're doing. They're puffed up without reason. It creates arrogance and elitism. And one of the things you see uh, with people like this is they love to throw the you love the world flag. Right? You don't line up with their preference. You don't line up with their conviction. And, uh, and they got the yellow flag right there. Right? And they hear you talking about listening to a Michael Jackson song. <gasps> You listen to a Michael Jackson, throw the flag, you love the world. Throw that down there, blow the whistle, you love the world, right? You, you went and saw the Hunger Games? I mean, come on, children killing children, you love the world, right? Just throw that flag down, and it creates this, this arrogance, right? I'm, I'm, more, I'm more holy you look in Galatians 5.26, and it shows us the poles of uh, legalism. You have the, in Galatians 5.26, it says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Really interesting. Paul, if you, if you look at the context of Galatians 5, I mean, Paul is just, he has just got a double-barrel shotgun of gospel of grace, and he is just, picking off wolves and picking off doctrines of demons and just, it's about grace. And here's the deeds of the flesh. And they're obvious. If you're under law, this is what it looks like. Here's the fruit of the spirit. If you're in this, if you're in Christ and God produces God, and this is what's produced in you. And then he drops this right at the end of the verse. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. The two poles of legalism, you have conceit, boastfulness, pride. Look at me, look what I did. Look how holy I am. Look how righteous I am. I'm awesome. And then you've got Envy, what is that? I'm lower, I'm condemned. Oh, I wish I was like that one. I'm not as holy as the Pharisee letting blood, with the blood dripping down his face because he, he closes his eyes when he walks in public, I, right? Pride and condemnation are the two symptoms of legalism, and sometimes we don't think that condemnation is, we think if I'm, you know, if, if, I, if I could just go low, you know, and and, and just feel miserable about myself all the time and condemned and guilty that somehow God is pleased with that. It doesn't please God at all uh, for you to reject grace and reject his righteousness because y- your, spirit, your resume is, is bad. Uh, that's still legalism. difference is the, the, the Pharisee, the, the legalist, uh, the, bo- the boastful one thinks they got over the bar of works and law. The condemned one knows they didn't. Same disease though. Here's a good acid test for you to know how well you're doing living under law or under grace. Okay, anybody get stopped by a police officer sometime over the last year? Thank you, my brother. Appreciate your confession. That's good. Two days. Just two days, Okay, two days ago. Good. Okay, I mean not good, but thank you for the information. Okay. Now, uh, when the police officer came up to your window, did he commend you for how well you were driving? No. no? What, what did he do? And then, point it out, yeah, point it out where you messed up. When you are under law, that cop is always in your window. You always feel like what you're doing wrong is being pointed out. You're living in discouragement, you live in depression, you live in anxiety, you live in fear, as opposed to having... The Holy Spirit as your passenger. I'm sure this analogy breaks down really bad if you, you know, if you really break it, split hairs. But every analogy does. As opposed to having the Holy Spirit as your passenger, you know, Um, my daughter Grace, 16, just got her permit, and I'm in the passenger seat, and I'm trying to encourage her, right? You know that you, you should take that turn a little different, or we will perish. Okay. I don't want to perish. So take that turn a little smoother next time, right? I'm encouraging her. <laughs> it's a difference between dad in the passenger seat encouraging the young driver versus the cop in the window always pointing out your infraction. We are under grace. Verse 19, not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from the Lord. Legalism kills. Why? Because legalism removes you from the power source. C.J. Mahaney in his book, The Cross-Centered Life, said this, Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. Catch that one. Legalism is seeking to achieve forgiveness. Forgiveness from God and acceptance by God through obedience to God. Now, if that's what's so bad about obedience, well, nothing unless that is what you're trusting in in order to make you acceptable to God. Under grace, obedience is not a condition by which God accepts you, it's the fruit that you are accepted by the Lord. Two horrible things happen. When we allow this kind, of, this kind of Jesus plus legalistic type teaching to get into our spirit. Number one, it replaces the standard by which God accepts you from grace to law. Which makes us unacceptable. And number two, it alters the power source. No longer is Christ and his Holy Spirit the power source to live the Christian life. But it is your strength and your power and your ability to keep the law. So that's why Paul said in Galatians 5.1, For freedom has Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again, in other words, just want to make it clear, to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. Let me uh, breeze through the last two here, two sections. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teachings, the elemental things of the world. You know what he's saying here? Legalism, performanceism is basic human nature. Folks, that's the way the world works. Education, work equals reward. Athletics, work equals reward. Business, work equals reward. But if you bring that mentality that your work is is what makes you acceptable, your work is, is, is what is is ultimately rewarded. If you bring that into the door of the kingdom, you destroy the essence of what it is because this thing is about grace. It's about Christ. Not us. I love that. Christ above all. The elemental things of the world. Verse 23. These things have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion. They have an appearance of religion. And how does it end? But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Romans 7.9 says this. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. You know what he's saying there? Once I was alive apart from the law. In other words, I came to Christ by grace. I came alive, not by works, not by self, but by Christ and his work, by grace. But then we get on the journey, don't we? We get into our sanctification, and we can slip back under law again. And Paul said, will you continue in the flesh that which which he began in the spirit? What happens when we do that is, he says, when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. I died. Folks, this is the revival you don't want. When we go back to the elemental spirits of the world, work, my work equals reward uh, mentality, uh, works righteousness, when we go back into that mentality, let me line up all the rules, do do my best to keep all the rules and that will make me righteous in the eyes of God. that'll, That'll somehow give me some spiritual power. Paul is saying, Uh, These have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. In other words, that mentality, legalism, doesn't give you any power to defeat sin. Nothing. Only Christ and His Holy Spirit, when we're under grace, can do that. Aren't you thankful tonight for the grace of God? Aren't you thankful that it's faith alone, grace alone, and Christ alone? That is by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast. Let no one, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink with regard to any of these things. But remain with your eyes on Christ and the cross. Count all things as rubbish. Trust in him and his work every day. It's so scandalous. We drift and we leak. We need to come back to it every day. Let's pray. And as I pray, I'm going to have the worship band come back up. Father, we thank you, as I sang earlier, that I am complete in Christ. I thank you that, as Jim sang earlier, all of my hope is in you. So, Lord, uh, like, a, like a bird which has wandered uh, and returns back uh, to its nesting place, Lord, so the eyes of our heart, Lord, which have wandered, Lord, uh, our faith, Lord, which which... Drifts away and and can can be misplaced in in self, misplaced in our works, misplaced, Lord, in in uh, in some other thing. It's our basic human nature. It's our fallen nature, Lord. We return to you. Our eyes are on you. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. We love you and we thank you tonight for grace in Jesus' name.